This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Unmute yourselves, women, and start joining in. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Well, we find ourselves today on somewhat shaky ground, Stephanie. We're talking about a court that neither of us have ever visited, but we're going to do it anyway because it's been in the news recently. Yep, and it's the African Court on Human and People's Rights. And a couple of countries have said they're going to withdraw from a part of it because it looks like they don't like some of its decisions. Well, that sounds so familiar. And I know it's based in Arusha. Um, I know also it's relatively young. Uh, it was already there when I was covering the Rwanda Tribunal um, at the end of the 1990s. But it's only in recent years, as it's come up with some more substantial decisions, that people have started to take notice. Luckily for us, there's a whole community covering the court, academics, researching, lawyers, monitoring human rights, NGOs, lobbying, all of the, the circus we usually see around our courts. And we found some of them. Yeah, we've got uh, Misha Plagis. Um, hi, Misha. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Great. Great to have you. I think you're researching at the ASA Institute and you're also associate editor of the blog, the Africa Court of Human and People's Rights Monitor. Uh, and who else do we have, Stephanie? We have Alice Banens. Uh, she joins us from Senegal, from Dakar. She's a legal advisor with Amnesty International. Hi, Alice. Hi there. Hi, everyone. So let's let's start with the news. Uh, in April, both Benin and Ivory Coast declared they withdraw from the part of the declaration where private people and uh, NGOs can take cases to the court. Uh, and before that, uh, Tanzania who's in fact the host state of the court, and even before that, Rwanda also each withdrew from this, um, I'm not too sure what it's called, is it a protocol? And I know that we should be using the correct technical language here, so I'm hoping that you're going to correct us as to how we should describe all of these things. So let's start with that, Misha. Explain to us what, what what's going on. What do these withdrawals actually mean? And I'm going to mute myself so you have a chance to say something. Thanks for that. And so maybe just going back a little bit to when this court actually was established. So um, the court interprets the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, which was um, adopted in 81 and came into force in 86, I believe. And there was no African court established in that charter. There was only the African Commission. And part of the reason for that was there was this assumption that asking for an African court would have been a step too far that states were not interested in having a court and giving up that part of their sovereignty and allowing a court to adjudicate human rights cases. So the protocol that establishes a court was only adopted in 1998 and only came into force in 2004. And the court actually had its first case submitted in 2008 and, had its first, and decided that case in 2009. So in those terms, yes, it is a very new court, but the human rights system that it forms a part of, that falls under the African Union, um, has existed for um, a little while longer. 
And what happened with the establishment of the protocol that creates the African Court on Human and People's Rights was that, again, there was sort of a flexibility mechanism um, put in and said that the court did not have jurisdiction over individuals or NGO claims that go directly to the court unless the state gives specific permission for the court to hear those cases. And that falls under Article 34, subparagraph 6 of the protocol that establishes the court and requires that the states um, submit a special declaration and that gives the court this competence. And so to date, only 10 states have done that. And in that time, also four states have withdrawn. So Rwanda was the first uh, state to do so back in 2016. And then Tanzania did the same in November 2019. And now we've seen Benin and Cote d'Ivoire follow in April of this year. And this trend is now becoming more and more worrying. And Alice, um, so when we look at this, um, there are only a few states that have the possibility where citizens and NGOs have the possibility to go to the court. Um, but how, you know, do they make use of that opportunity? Are all the cases at the court actually by citizens and NGOs? Or are there also states that have sanctioned uh, these cases? You know, you said before the state has to agree uh, to bring a case if they don't sign the extra protocol. Have any cases been allowed by states? Yeah, so most of the cases that have been submitted to the courts uh, to date have been submitted by individuals or NGOs. Um, I don't even think that there was even one submitted by the state, not that I know of. Uh, there were a few that were referred to the court by the African Commission. Um, so if you're a state and you are part of the protocol, and uh, you have not done this 34-6 declaration, as we call it, if you want to use that specific technical term, as you were saying, Janet, um, you can still have some cases that are brought against you through the African Commission. However, um, you cannot have any cases submitted against you by an individual or an NGO until you've done that 34-6 declaration. And so what happened now is that those uh, four states have We've done that 34-6 declaration, but they're still part of the protocol. So that's the nuance there. Uh, Misha, you want to step in? Yes, I think something else is really important to note um, that distinguishes the African court and the special declaration a little bit compared to other human rights institutions is that you do not have to be a victim. So there doesn't have to be a direct harm to you as the individual or to you as the NGO to bring the case. So what we've seen is that when certain issues arise in countries, it's not always a specific individual with a specific harm that brings the case. And especially um, for NGOs, this has been really important in terms of bringing cases related to human rights violations of which they have not specifically been the victim of. So this gives the court um, quite a broad mandate once the state actually makes such a declaration. Okay, we've got some hands raised here of uh, different people who want to, to join in. Unmute yourselves, women, and start joining in. Go for it, Alice. Yeah, just um, a little detail that's uh, probably interesting to know as well. Um, once a state has done a withdrawal of its 34-6 declaration, this withdrawal actually takes effect only one year after. So that was decided when the first withdrawal was made by Rwanda in uh, 2016. 
the court um, said, okay, a withdrawal is valid. However, it will only take effect 12 months later and it will not have any impact on the ongoing cases. So that's why at present uh, we have nine states um, that still have an active 34-6 declaration, but once all of those withdrawals will have taken into effect next year in 2021, there will be only six left. I, I, I get why the technical side of this is really important to understand the detail of, of what's possible and what's not. And that's how um, a court operates. And we need to understand all of that. But I also want to understand what kind of decisions has this court actually made? Are they, you know, why are they important? I mean, we've mentioned a bit of freedom of expression. I think I've seen that there's kind of to do with the right to stand for election in places. Why is it so significant, Alice? Yeah, so that goes back to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights first. So the, the court has jurisdiction to receive all cases that um, are concerning the interpretation or the application of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, as well as any other human rights instrument that the state concerns has ratified. So basically, it's a human, a human rights court that receive cases about alleged violations of human rights by the state. Um, it can be about the right to a fair trial, it can be about freedom of expression, it can be not to be discriminated against, um, you know, torture, it can be any type of human rights you can think of um, that uh, is protected under the charter or under any other human rights instrument that the state has ratified. Then obviously, there are the cases that went to the court. So that's the potential. But in practice, what happened is that a lot of cases that were brought to the court uh, related to the right to a fair trial. And there were a few other cases that were on other issues, such as um, human rights, freedom of expression, etc. cetera. Uh, but there's, the potential of that court is, is much bigger than what's happening so far. Uh, but there's, there has been quite a few very interesting cases though. I know you want to talk, I see you want to talk, so please go ahead. It sounds a bit like a human rights activist wet dream, like you can take anything to this court, you can really, really enjoy yourself, but obviously it hasn't been used by everybody in, in that case. From, from outside as an observer, I'd say it looks like um, opposition. People have said, yay, now we've got a court that we can take our states to. And that's what the states are really objecting to, that it's basically used by opposition parties. So I think that you're right for some of the more contentious cases. But we also, if you look at actually the case of the court, so there's about 90 cases that have been finalized by the court. So we're still talking about a relatively small number of cases. There's also a general lack of uh, knowledge about what the court can be used for by lawyers and NGOs on the ground in many of the states that have actually made a declaration. So often what we do see is that when cases come, they're either coming from elites, so political op leading political opposition um, uh, politicians. So they're not, you know, someone in a municipal election in a rural part of a country bringing these kinds of cases. They're really already quite well-informed global citizens. Um, but the mainstay of the court has by far been cases related to the right to a fair trial in Tanzania. 
Um, and I think that this has probably got to do with the fact that the court is actually located in Tanzania. There might be a bit more of local media coverage of what the court does. And then once a couple of cases were successful, you saw this like sort of onslaught of cases related to exactly the same issue. So the court, if we would say, what does the court's bread and butter, it's actually fair trial cases in Tanzania, which will now only last for another year um, in terms of submitting cases, not in terms of deciding them, because there are a lot of other uh, cases that are now sort of still pending related to Tanzania that will still be decided on. Um, but it's also important to note that there have been some really other interesting cases that have come to the court. Um, for example, um, more recently there's been a case on uh, against Tanzania challenging the mandatory death sentence for murder cases and this was of course this is potentially linked to uh, Tanzania's withdrawal it's not as clear-cut why Tanzania withdrew as it is with the other three states so it could be kind of a death by a thousand cuts situation or it could be that this particular case around the death penalty was like one step too far the other three states are more obvious because those were cases related to high-profile politicians case that received a lot of domestic attention in terms of publicity. So it's kind of almost like a saving face mechanism for the state to say, well, we disagree with the court, the court's overstepped its bounds, it's violating our sovereignty, whatever their argument might be, it's kind of logical that they've withdrawn in relation to that particular case. And I think that comes to a dilemma that the court faces, because on the one hand, the court has to deal with cases that are referred to it. Otherwise, it's going to lose legitimacy in the eyes of the people that would want to use the court. But on the other hand, when cases that are being referred to it are so highly politicized, it could then become a victim of, it, of its success. I think, uh, Misha, you also coined the term, uh, uh, the hashtag, uh, African courts backlash. Is that, uh, was that what you're referring to there? African court resistance, actually, <laughs> but um, yes, no, it's, um, yes, it's exactly that. So it's also the other side to this is the African court is certainly not the first regional instrument to receive this kind of um, response from African states. We saw it with the SADC tribunal. We've seen it with the ECOWAS court. We've seen it with the East African Court of Justice. We've even seen a version of it with the African Commission when it accepted and then withdrew the observer status of the Coalition of African Lesbians. So this is not the first time that an African institution that deals with human rights, rule of law or democracy has received a political response from the state where the state basically is upset that they're being called out on their behavior and they hide behind the guise of sovereignty um, as an excuse. But in reality, all these courts only had jurisdiction in the first place because the state explicitly gave them the authority to do so. So it's kind of a hypocritical argument of the state to say, well, our sovereignty is being violated, when in fact they're the ones who agreed voluntarily for that court to have jurisdiction in the first place. Go ahead, Alice. There's something important that Misha said at the, at the very beginning, um, is that we shouldn't fall into that trap of just uh, talking and looking at those few highly politicized or uh, cases or that had all this media attention. Uh, because they are very few and they got all that media attention, but they probably are, what, three, four cases out of 90? 
it's actually not that many and a lot of the others are quite interesting and we don't talk about them. So perhaps, perhaps, perhaps let's shed some light on, on what, what can happen at Darko that can be good as well, if I, if I may say so. So for instance, there's a case that um, is one success story, um, the Norbert Zongo case. I don't know if you've heard about that case. It's, um, so it's, it's very famous in Burkina Faso as this uh, journalist uh, who was murdered in, I think it was the 13th of December, uh, 1998. He was found um, burned in his car with two of his colleagues and his younger brother. Um, and this journalist was investigating um, political and uh, economical scandals in Burkina Faso. Um, and uh, the family of this journalist and the other three individuals murdered with him tried to get some justice in Burkina Faso. So they went to Burkina Faso courts, uh, they asked for an investigation, um, independent commission went, investigated, did a report that went out uh, six months later. It was referred to the courts and then there was some rambling, rambling, it got stuck. And then five years later or six years later, uh, the courts in Burkina Faso said, no, we're not going to pursue that. Um, we're not going to prosecute. And so the family appealed, and again it was confirmed. So there was no place left where they could go in their country. But the Burkina Faso had ratified the protocol and had made that 34-6 declaration. So they had this possibility of going directly to the African court, which they did. Uh, so they went to the African court and they said, well, look, uh, Burkina Faso has violated our right to get justice for our relatives that have been murdered. Um, and the court said, well, yes. Uh, so there was this judgment. Um, so I, shouldn't, I should have the, the date of that judgment. I think it was um, 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that said, uh, indeed, Burkina Faso has violated. Uh, the rights of uh, those persons, and then another judgment came later and said, okay, you've got a right to reparation, um, so you need to compensate those brothers, sisters, uh, daughters, mothers, fathers of these people. They will receive a da -da amount of money, but you also need to actually reopen the case and uh, investigate and prosecute and find those responsible. And Burkina Faso did. So they gave the money, they reopened the case, and they uh, asked, and, and uh, actually they asked friends because one of the um, suspects in that case is uh, the brother of former president Blaise Compaoré, uh, who is called um, uh, François Compaoré, and he's in France. So they did this uh, arrest warrant, asked the French authorities, to have him uh, extradited back in Burkina Faso, and the French authorities uh, said yes a couple of months ago. Uh, so you see the potential of that court. You see what can happen uh, when there's no hope anymore for getting justice, getting your rights at your domestic level, and that's when you go to the African court. That's the added value. That's where this court is there. Misha, if you want to add to that, I can ask my question later. 
Yes, I just wanted to say so Norbert Zonga is a great example of a case and another one that's really interesting um, which is decided in 2017 is the case that was referred by the African Commission on Human and People's Rights to the court uh, concerning the Ogiek uh, people against uh, Kenya, which is basically about land ownership um, and especially communal land ownership of indigenous peoples and protecting those rights in the face of development projects. And this is one of the three cases that was actually referred by the African Commission to the African court. And I think what is really important here as well is that the African Commission is a very active, very good a human rights body in the African context and even in a world context, it does incredible things. But it's only the court that can give legally binding decisions. It's the only pan-African court on the continent. So we kind of need both of these institutions and what we're seeing is that the court is kind of being withered away through the withdrawal of these declarations and the commission's ability to transfer cases is coming under threat through the review procedure um, of their rules of procedure. And so the whole human rights framework within the African Union is actually now being attacked at different levels um, and in different ways. And so those who are interested in the human rights project in Africa need to be concerned about these kinds of developments. I wanted to ask a bit more, more general also about what, what I hear about this court and what it's doing and looking at reparations. It sounds uh, a bit similar to maybe the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, uh, but does it also... Um, it's, it seems that people are, they don't like the decisions, but when they're made, like Burkina Faso is apparently heeding the decisions. So how much power does the court have to enforce its ruling and how much do states actually uh, take this into account? And does a ruling for Burkina Faso then translate into essentially setting the bar for all the other states? I might start by answering that and let Alice then um, fill in more detail. So I would first of all say, I would not claim that people don't like the decisions. I would say very specifically, the states do not like the decisions. Um, I think a lot of the applicants to the court come away quite happy with a few um, exceptions. Um, and in terms of implementation um, and enforcement, so the African court falls under the AU. So unlike what we see in, for example, Europe, where the ECHR is part of the Council of Europe, not the EU, here, the e, the, effectively, the EU of Africa, the African Union is the overarching body that um, is involved in the African court, and the African court is one of its organs. Um, so the AU should be playing a bigger role, and it's not. I mean, the AU has been silent on these withdrawals, and that's very problematic. The other thing uh, to take into consideration is a lot of the decisions of the court are very recent. If you look at the sort of timeline of its jurisprudence, um, I think half of all the cases it's decided have been in the last two to three years. So there are issues around also just not having data on enforcement and implementation. So it's sometimes a bit hard to determine how effective the court actually is. No, this this is all very true, and it's actually I, I think it's a, um, a question that arises with kind of all international tribunals. That to a certain degree, decisions by an international tribunal needs to be implemented um, by the states, and the states need to be willing to do so. Obviously, the first responsibility lies with the state itself. 
Um, other players should have a role, such as the African Union, absolutely, and it's not taking up this role that it should, uh, but it's the state first. Um, and so far, we have to say, indeed, that it has not been um, always a great success. Some states have taken a bit of time to implement. Sometimes it is as well for understandable reasons. Um, so it, it really, so if you look at the cases, all the orders by the court are not of the same nature. Sometimes it can be pretty straightforward, you know. Uh, you take that guy out of prison. Well, yes, you can do that the next day. But then sometimes the court asks, well, you need to actually review that law. And that can be pretty difficult, it depends. Uh, you gotta go through an internal process of it, you have to deal with other you know, challenges at the domestic level. So there's a degree of nuance as well on you know, how states implement, how they can or how they cannot, and how they want and how they don't want. So it, it's, a bit of, it's a bit more mixed. So there's, there's perhaps one case, if you allow me, um, that I think is interesting in that regard. Uh, it's um, a case that is called APDF and EHRDA against Mali. Uh, so it was the first case on women's rights. It was in uh, 2018. Um, and the uh, two NGOs went to the African court to say Malian law is not uh, compliant with international human rights law uh, on several aspects. Um, for instance, that uh, the women and girls need to give consent before getting married. Uh, they need to uh, be 18 years old uh, before getting married and stuff like that. And the court said, indeed, you're right, Malian law is not compliant and ordered Mali to um, change its law within two years. So actually, I think the anniversary of that judgment is in three days. So I think we're hitting that bar of the two years, um, and the law has not been changed yet. But it is quite a difficult task. If you know a little bit the Malian context, what not only, you know, it's a country that is dealing with its own armed conflict and a lot of other issues, but even just on that particular issues, there are some very um, difficult religious forces that are preventing political leaders to do amendments to the um, family code. So it is not an easy task and it's not, perhaps not a question of political will there. Um, perhaps it is, but sometimes you gotta give it time is what I'm trying to say. And once this decision will be implemented by the Malian authorities, that is gonna have direct impact on like millions of girls and women in Mali. So that goes beyond just, you know, one symbolic case of one person. It's gonna have a huge impact. I don't know whether I need to do this or not, but uh, just uh, to let everybody know that we're recording this uh, distantly and therefore you might hear some, some different sounds in the background depending on where everybody is. Um, but um, I wanted to ask specifically about I understand that it's only recently got going in the last couple of years, so that might be one reason why fewer people know about it. Um, 
there's this term that uh, Oliver Windridge used when he wrote a piece recently at uh, Opinion No Euro saying it's kind of under the radar. Um, but you, Misha, have put together a Twitter list of people who actually monitor and look at this this court. It still feels, though, like it's a very kind of minority sport. I mean, why do so few people take notice of it? Um, yes, yeah, so thanks for mentioning the list. Indeed, I'm trying to curate a list on Twitter to try and make it easier to find information on the court. Um, I think that there's a combination of um, problems. I think that, so generally in the human rights space, like I was trained as a human rights lawyer, um, that there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, interest in the inter-American system and in the European system because they're older, they're well established, and also scholars from those regions are publishing a lot on those institutions. The African court does actually receive a relatively okay amount of attention within Africa, um, but it's not well known to scholars often situated outside who at the end of the day, do control a lot of things like where the prestigious journals and these kinds of things. So there is a lack of publication in sort of a wider human rights uh, sense, and that's a problem and that's a barrier that needs to be overcome. Um, I also think that part of the problem of the African court is that it's also not without criticism. So although I am a champion of the court and I, uh, most of my academic work these days is based around what the court does or doesn't do um, and how states are responding, I think it's also important to note that the court is not a perfect institution. Um, one of the things that I personally find very frustrating as a researcher on the court is the fact that their jurisprudence is not always of the best quality. Um, sometimes their judicial decisions are very short. They're not very explicit about why they've come to a certain conclusion. And so that makes it very hard, for example, also to work in a comparative uh, context where you take an ECHR case or an inter-American case that could be 150 pages long worth of legal reasoning and building up towards an argument and that you can really analyze how and where they've come from. Whereas with the African court, you can't always do the same thing. So there are problems with the court, and the example of remedies is a great example. I actually have an article coming out later this year, which shows that in sort of a two-year or one-year period, depending on how you look at it, there, there's been a huge evolution in how the court has provided remedies for fair trial cases, because they weren't very successful in the Alex Thomas and Abu Bakari cases, and they learned from that experience, and they changed, and they evolved, and their learning curve was extremely steep, and they really made significant changes to the way they provided remedies. But these kinds of things are all happening in sort of the last year or two. So maybe people who looked at the court previously were not very enthused by what they saw and haven't gone back since, but actually there's been a huge amount of growth at the court. So yes, there are problems at the court, but there's also a lot of change. And I think that it's important for people to stay engaged and also to know about the court. I don't know, I, Alice and I, I think agree that quite often when we talk, what do you do? And you say, oh, I work on the African court and human and people's rights. People are like, oh, there's a court. Um, and this is a problem we definitely need to overcome. Alice? No, actually, I was, I was going to say that exact same thing in the end. It's just, there's really a lack of awareness, um, including within legal communities in African states. There's, uh, which is what worries me the most, um, is that this, we really need to do, and when I say we, <laughs> probably the court first, 
um, outreach so that people know more about that core, including you know, lawyers, judges, authorities uh, in concerned African states. And th there's a lot of work to be done there for sure. Alice, we talked earlier, Misha explained that, you know, the, the system is now slightly being possibly hollowed out on two sides uh, from uh, the people from the states withdrawing and also the African Union not giving, uh, not speaking out on this. Um, for you, who knows a lot about African NGOs and previously you were with FEDH, Uh, bringing together African human rights organizations in these kind of cases, like how big of a blow are these withdrawals and what can the court do if there are only five or six states where, where individuals can, can go to the court? So first I want to apologize because I think my neighbor just got up and is making a lot of noise. <laughs> so welcome to COVID world. <laughs> so hopefully you will be able to hear me. Um, yeah, those withdrawals are really a blow. It's I mean, it's very disappointing for people who were trying to engage with that uh, regional system of protection of human rights, for sure. Um, but I think what really needs to happen if we want that system to continue to exist and, you know, be efficient has to come from the states. And it's really their first responsibility again. So what I'm really hoping is that other states will also react. So the African Union must react, obviously, the court itself as well. Now it has done a press statement. I'm sure you've seen as well. I think it was released yesterday. Um, but other states need to react. We need more people who ratify this protocol and make that 34-6 declaration. That's That's really what will, you know, do the difference here. Um, so it's really in their hands to save the court, if we can say so. But it still exists. It's not dead yet. We still have, you know, six states against which you can bring cases. But obviously, six is not enough for a regional system. Um, yeah, go ahead, Misha. Oh, and I think we also, like, we have to emphasize, the in addition to what Alice said, we have to emphasize the role of the African Union. I mean, this is an attack on one of the African Union's organs, and as far as I know, it's been silent. And this is a really fundamental problem that, you know, the AU promotes that they stand for human rights. You've got the Africa Agenda 2063, the Africa we want. It's full of human rights and development goals. But when it comes to the organs of the AU that actually implement human rights when they're violated and states respond with sort of, you know, by undermining these institutions and the AU says nothing and does nothing, then I think we're in a situation where human rights are purely important to the AU on a rhetorical level until action is actually taken. Well, thank you both for a fascinating discussion and for uh, uh, battling against the, uh, the odds with uh, various bits of traffic and banging and I've got dogs in the background here as well. So let's see. Uh, see how our listeners cope with it all. But we also have a few standard questions that we ask our uh, contributors. And um, maybe we can start with, uh, with you, Misha, first. Uh, is there any question that we should have asked that we haven't asked you? 
I think um, there is still there are lots of questions still related to the African court, and I hope that this is very much the beginning of a conversation and not the end. Uh, the court definitely needs a lot more attention, and I think there there are very interesting things happening at the court in terms of its jurisprudence. There are very interesting things happening in the African human rights system in terms of the breadth of rights that it recognizes, um, let alone the things that are happening on the continent itself. And so, yes, I hope that this is the start and not the end, because there are plenty more questions to be addressed. Alice, do you see anything that we should have been asking you but uh, skipped over in our enthusiasm? No, no, no. I think it was great. And... Uh... Yeah, I'm really happy. You know, I was, I was, I was surprised when I saw your invitation coming, because nobody asked about the African court ever. So I'm really happy that we got that chance. You know. <laughs> And then, well, that goes into our our next question, which you answered a bit already. But what does everybody always get wrong about your job? And and Misha, you've already said that when you say you work on this, people say there is a court. But uh, Alice, do you have anything else that? Uh that people get wrong about uh, your job and, uh, and the African court? Uh, well, my job is, is, is not only to work on the African court, so it, it's actually only part of my job. So if you ask people really outside of you know, our environment um, and I tell them I'm a legal advisor for Amnesty, I think some of them just think that I work at the HR department and do contracts <laughs> for <laughs> Amnesty. Uh, if you ask some of my friends who know that I travel a bit um, around the African continent, they probably sometimes think that I'm a sort of uh, spy going on undercover missions in dangerous places of the world. So obviously all of that is incorrect. <laughs> It's something else. Uh, so you probably have a better sense of what I'm doing than most people anyway. And our last question, which uh, go to both of you, so um, whoever wants to take it first, is there anything that you've been reading recently, anything you've watched, anything you've heard, a podcast that you'd like to recommend to others? Uh, so I knew this question was coming because I've heard your podcast before. And I thought I need to find something smart to say and I've got nothing, you know, <laughs> because truth is in those, you know, confinement days, I just, I just don't have the space for it anymore. I try to keep my spirits up by just watching so many silly stuff that I've got nothing smart to say now. <laughs> oh, but the funnest recommendation are the stuff that keeps you sane. We had Priya Pillai confessing that she loves dog Twitter. I mean, there were people reading zombie novels. I mean, go ahead. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I... Uh... I honestly don't even know. I'm I'm doing too much of binging of that. But I I saw that there's something coming out today that is called the Eddy. So I haven't watched it yet, but it's a new TV series. It's taking place in the jazz club in Paris. So I know that this is the next thing I'm gonna watch. I don't know if it's any good, but <laughs> here you go. Misha, what do you recommend? Um. So when sort of the COVID. In 19 lockdown started, I was um, at the beginning of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Half a Yellow Sun. And it was a very strange experience to be reading a book about civil war 
um, and the increasing restrictions on the day-to-day -day lives of the characters through the story of Biafra and Nigeria and um, at the same time also experiencing sort of lockdown starting um, in Europe and so for people who haven't read it and people who don't know where Biafra is or was um, definitely read that book um, Chimamanda is an incredible author um, and now that that nerd part is over, I will also admit to having watched The Tiger King um, during lockdown, <laughs> which oh, is yeah. not particularly good, but very entertaining. Oh, it's not good. It's great. I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that recommendation from, from both of you. And thank you for braving all the technical issues of trying to do this and bringing us, I think, a really interesting. Definitely. Yeah. So bye. thank you both very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thanks Thank so you so much. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.